Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome, everybody. I'm really excited for today's conversation. We're going to cover a fantastic range of topics, including asset management, seeing decentralized finance early, decentralization, and actually living through what lots of people have been talking about but don't have experience in. We're lucky to have with us today Monel Issa, who is the CEO and founder at Avantgarde Finance, and she's also the founder of Enzyme Finance, as well as a number of other key DeFi projects. Mona, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting to be here. It's my pleasure. We always start off trying to piece together how people went on their journey and what were the components that got them to the place where they are now thinking through some of these financial frontiers. But first, you know, the basics. How do you think about your early career and what were the components of it that brought it together for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, my early career was in traditional finance. If you had said to me 20 years ago that I would end up in tech, I probably would not have believed you. I started straight out of university on working on the trading floor at Goldman Sachs and spent nearly 10 years there, market making and prop trading in initially in European equities, but then across asset classes. So derivatives, commodities, CDS spreads, etc. So have seen, you know, really a wide spectrum of things and have been fortunate or unfortunate enough to have <laughs> traded through the Lehman crisis, which was a huge and eye-opening experience. Let me pause you on that, actually, because I also have my uh, Lehman scar tissue and value it deeply. What did you trade through the Lehman crisis and what did it feel like? What did you see? So by then I'd been at the firm for a few years already and Interestingly, I started my career off as a junior. They gave me the least interesting sector to start with. So I, at the time, it was a sector nobody cared about. I um, actually looked very much like crypto did a few years ago. It was the metal and mining space and equities. I sort of got pretty lucky because this sector went from being sort of almost penny stocks to nobody really care, from nobody really caring about them to suddenly you know, the whole China growth story and everybody wanting to own a piece of it. Liquidity was was really bad. It was the most volatile sector in the whole of the equities space. That was just this really, really big kind of five-year boom in commodity stocks. And towards the end of 2007, I started to feel that things were a little bit overheated. And at the time, we were allowed, especially if you were doing well on the trading desk, you were allowed to branch out into you know, trading other asset classes proprietarily. I started to think about how I could hedge my book or how I could start to build protection against a recession. I didn't see Lehman coming. I just felt that things felt very overstretched economically. Buying you know, downside protection was very expensive on my sector and actually on the market in general. And so I did a lot of digging and I discovered that CDS spreads were very tight. 
And buying um, credit default risk was maybe an easier way to gain exposure. <laughs> and so started chipping away at positions in, you know, CDS protection on my portfolio, which actually ended up being quite quite big and actually went into the Lehman crisis quite well positioned by by then sort of having shrunk my my long positions and and long a bunch of CDS protection which just exploded in 2008 so that was an example of you know having to think out of the box wanting to put a trade on in a safe way without taking much risk and trying to find an asset class that I could express that in which was almost, yeah, I guess you could say it was mispricing the risk and expressing my view in a, in a cheaper way. What gave you the intuition or what made you feel like it was getting hot? From a quantitative perspective, how would you define that intuition at the time? Yeah, it's a great question because it did start with intuition and then sort of, you know, research just sort of backed the the view. But the intuition, I guess, just came from... I, I really had to sell this stuff really hard <laughs> to people in the early days. You know, I was given a sector that nobody was interested in. I was told, look, you're pretty junior to take on this responsibility. So you've got three months to make it or break it. Back then, one of the measurements of success or the KPIs that traders were measured against was how much market share they had. And so in order to attract market share, I felt like I needed to start, you know, really writing about my sector and trying to make clients, make salespeople aware of the interesting things happening in my space in a really easy, digestible way. The few, the initial years were such a hustle. You know, I did achieve really high market share because no one else cared about that sector. So no one was writing about it. And so by default, any business that happened in that space typically came to me. Over the years, that pattern really shifted and it became everybody wanting to talk to me from the top kind of CIOs at some of the biggest firms globally wanting to see what, you know, the trader at Goldman in this sector thought about these stocks. You just sort of got a sense from seeing the types of orders, the types of flow, the way people were buying carelessly without asking, frankly, you know, the right questions anymore. Whereas in the, in the early days, they used to ask a lot of questions and they used to really care about fundamentals. And in the end, towards the end, it felt like people were just FOMOing almost and just, you know, piling in without really understanding getting some of the senior people involved so that the position sizes could be bigger, but really not doing the same diligence that they did in the early days. And so something about that made me feel nervous. And it was still quite a while after that, that things collapsed, but it was a sign of things heating up. And I think the commodity space did fuel that, that bull market, you know, for the last few years. And it probably... It was, I don't know if you remember, but in 2008, 2009, it was also the one that fell the most and the most aggressively. It's eerie to me, you know, hearing you describe that because it's so, these days, uncomfortable to look at parts of our market and have some of these feelings for me. And, you know, for a number of years, I've looked at the SoftBank strategy, the Tiger strategy as it relates to fintech and crypto. There's a long expose about Tiger's approach to venture capital from the generalist recently, which talked about, you know, the way they're 
investment machine outcompetes traditional VCs is by shortening the time horizon from, you know, having a fr- the holding period from seven years to something like three years. And the way they do that is through just the velocity of investing is much higher and thus the diligence is much lower. And therefore competition for all the deals is higher because more capital is chasing deals. And so the equilibrium you have now for a lot of private investing into fintech and crypto is being set by a pace that's very different from what I would have been used to about a decade ago. you know. And I wonder if you're seeing any of those parallels. I know we're off topic, but still. If you're seeing any of those parallels to some of the private investing activity today. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the lifespan of a crypto investment is usually quicker. Um, but usually that's, a lot of the time, that's because there's this token exit opportunity, right? When you your sort of SAFT or your SAFE becomes a token and then you have a liquidity event, which you just don't get in traditional finance and traditional venture as much. So I think that's a unique aspect that enables the time horizons to be shorter. But in terms of the diligence and the valuation, yeah, I would agree with that. That makes me nervous too. I think a lot of the investment seems to be driven by FOMO. The quality of questions we get from venture is sometimes disappointing look across the space sometimes and see some of the the valuations that are that are being disclosed for protocols that still don't really have any usage or you know at the moment I'd say the FOMO is around layer ones in particular and layer twos I think I do find it a little bit worrying. Uh, FOMO the uh, the blood of the space is pumping yeah. everywhere. <laughs> okay so you are in this very fast-paced trading role, uh, money management role at Goldman. Talk to us about moving into portfolio management and then moving into and seeing crypto and Web3 for the first time. After Goldman, I went to work for one of our clients as a portfolio manager. So I ran a long, short equity portfolio for them. And then four years into that, I uh, was approached by a small family office that asked um, if I wanted to launch my own equity fund. They said they could seed me $20 million. I felt that it was the right time in my career to take a risk like that. I was quite excited by the prospect. And I tried to launch uh, a fund with a $20 million seed. I raised $10 million dollars and proceeded to have one of the worst career experiences of my life. I think I had massively underestimated the efforts and the operational administrative overheads that coming come with launching such a small fund. Both places that I had worked at prior had huge scale and huge assets under management, you know, to be able to afford four to five operational admin professionals per investment professional. And I just was totally unprepared for the amount of operation administrative overhead that would fall on my shoulders. So that took me away from investing, which was the negative part. The positive in hindsight was that I, for the first time in my career, I saw what was happening behind the scenes. I saw how a trade was settled. I saw how a derivative inequities, I saw how a cash equity was settled. I saw how a derivative was settled. I saw how a future was settled. I saw how the booking processes for these were completely different, very manual, very labor intensive. I, you know, experienced building my own PL system and tracking, you know, a variety of different asset classes in real time, how a fund admin works, how a custodian works, how a settlement house works, transfer agent, et cetera, et cetera. It was really, really painful. I can't begin to explain how painful it was. But when I look back now, I think that if I hadn't had that experience, I also wouldn't have been 
as quick to recognize the potential of blockchain for finance. So that year, that sort of entrepreneurial experience lasted a year. I decided to close the fund after a year. And I was planning to take some time off. And during that time off, I was in Brazil and read an article randomly about Bitcoin. And then that led me to Ethereum. This was end of 2015. And before I knew it, I was just completely obsessing over both Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I kept reading about Crypto Valley in Switzerland. Before I knew it, I was on a one-way ticket to Switzerland, completely immersed myself into the Crypto Valley and just wanted to learn. I didn't have any technical background, so I was a little bit out of place in these discussions. You know, other than Polychain and I think KR1, which were still very early stage funds, there were no (laughs) finance people in crypto back then. All I could do was... You the, know, the dream, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it was a dream, but it was, it was also they rejected me at first because I was the evil finance person. But I think, you know, persistence and, you know, trying to help a lot of early founders out in Crypto Valley, they, you know, in return sort of exchanged the favor by, you know, answering a lot of questions that I had, helping explain the technology to me better, etc. By the summer of 2016, or just before the summer, I had a pretty strong conviction that the future of assets was digital. And if the future of assets was digital, then smart contracts could help us automate all the painful, annoying, heavy processes we incur every day in traditional finance. That was the beginning of Enzyme <laughs> or Melon in those days. Yeah, maybe we go into you know when you founded Melon, what was that insight that you were orienting melon around at that stage and maybe paint a picture of what the market felt like then and what that initial problem was that you saw that you wanted to build around. So it was sort of July, August, I think, 2016, when we officially founded Melonport, uh, the company that built V1 of Melon. The vision was to completely automate all the operational and administrative processes in asset management and enable anyone in the world to set up a decentralized fund or index or account that can interact with digital assets and provide you real-time reporting, risk management embedded in smart contracts, you know, trade booking in order to be able to download historical reporting, can take care of fees in the case of a fund, so you can build in management fees, performance fees, These are calculated and distributed by the smart contracts. You can build in risk management policies so you can determine what a trader can and can't do for your fund. And these rules are enforced at a smart contract level. You can have stop losses built in. You can have basically everything is programmable now in the asset management space. And for me, the vision was we didn't have the term DeFi in 2016. I think that term was kind of coined in 2019. But for me, this was a complete revamp of the how in finance, not the what, but like basically how, you know, the entire asset management system works. And that's what we've basically been building anytime ever since. The impact of that is higher efficiency, lower fees, complete transparency for investors, complete ability for fund managers and investment managers to focus on what they like doing, what they're good at doing, and just a massive lower of barriers to entry. One of the things that's, I think, key is going through the crypto market cycle for 
you know, entrepreneurs that engage with this ecosystem. And everywhere has market cycles and you have gone through market cycles. But a lot of stories of DeFi founders are about you know, building during 2018 or figuring out ways to handle 2018, figuring out ways to, you know, to have cash and to ignore the signals that the world is sending them, ignore the signals that can be both financially difficult and mentally difficult. How did you navigate, you know, your mission and the protocol's mission through the ICO boom and then into sort of the roller coaster that ensued? We did a token sale in February 2017, so a few months after we launched the company. Bear in mind, we were pretty much one of the first ever token sales after Ethereum launched. We were amazed by how fast it sold out. I think we broke a record at the time. I think it was two minutes or something like that. We sold the token at, I think it was $4.50 or $5 at the time. And then things just went mental. I think, you know, the token price got to $250 within a few months. And I was completely amazed at why people were buying this when we hadn't even delivered, you know, a V1. <laughs> you know, there was nothing on mainnet or testnet. And I was I was just completely mind boggled. But it was it was an exciting time and it was a nice time because everyone thought, you know, everyone wanted a piece of us. Everyone wanted a call with us. Everyone wanted to meet us. We were being asked for speaker slots left, right and center. And then, like you said, 2018, 19 happened. And that was as far away as you can get from that. Like, you know, I think, don't really know, there wasn't a single point where it happened. It just sort of happened gradually. But over the space of a few months, you know, token price kept kept grinding lower, 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 lower to the point where it kept making all-time lows. I think at one point our market cap was 2 million from a high of 300 million. And there was no liquidity. There was no interest. Our Telegram channel, which used to maybe support five, 600 messages a day, was like a ghost town. We'd be lucky if we got two messages in a week. Investors had zero interest in speaking to us, or if they did eventually speak to us, it would just result in a, it's a nice chatting to you, but you're, you're five years, too, we think you're five years too early, and we don't think you're going to survive. No speaker opportunities, no Twitter. <laughs> I think we I think we lost Twitter followers during that time. And it was just a very lonely, difficult time, which still, I think, you know, affects me when I think of it. And we were able to pull through it by basically, you know, having a small subset of people on the team, core developers and myself, who were motivated by the longer term vision and not the shorter term gains. So a few people on the team that, you know, I think it was a core six of us basically that worked during the bear market that made massive sacrifices. I think I didn't take a salary for three years, only recently starting a mo- started taking a modest one recently, but our developers took big cuts. And the motivating factor was if we get this right, and if we work through the bear market with a great V2, V3, you know, for, for after the bear market, we will be rewarded by the value of the token. And that's basically what we did. It was it was a very dark time. It was a very difficult time. Personally, I doubted myself many times whether we were on the right track or not and whether I was making a big mistake. But we came out of it the other side. And I think since our V2 launch in February last year, we've actually had perfect positioning because we came out with a great product just as things were recovering. And then we've seen our TVL go from practically zero in the bear market to a high, I think we're making all-time highs just a couple of days ago of $235 million. 
That's very raw. So thank you for sharing that. I think a lot of entrepreneurs have raw experiences, but to be you know so powerless and caught in the overall market cycle is really, really difficult. I was just going to say, I think we've learned a lot from that. In hindsight, as a trader, <laughs> I should have probably known better and managed, you know, been more vocal about managing our tre treasury more efficiently in the good times. I think there's something very different to when you dedicate your life to building a protocol where you get very emotionally entangled. You know, you fall in love with your vision <laughs> in a way. It's sort of anytime emotions are involved, and, you know, in, in my case, I'm definitely very passionate about what I do. I think in investment decisions around your own token can be more difficult to see in a, you know, in a more sort of balanced view. And so I think where we've gotten a lot stronger now in this bull market is managing our treasury better, trying to educate other DAOs and treasurers on managing their treasury better because a lot of people didn't survive. And for even those that did, you know, I was just talking to Kane from Synthetics uh, a few months ago about this. I was so involved in our own problems, I didn't realize that they almost didn't make it as well. You sort of left with scars after something like that, and you do everything in your power to make sure it doesn't happen again. So with Enzyme, we're also trying to solve a big treasury management problem for DAOs as well. Let's move on to that topic of coming out on the other side of 2018. And you now have expansion in the market. You have capital gains in lots of tokens. And again, lots of capital coming in, just looking for risk assets. At the same time, you start having the thematic of decentralized finance as a meme, as a thing that people are starting to believe in, and a destination to where capital goes. You're also starting to have organizational constructs that are a lot more crypto-native, the DAO construct, that start to develop large token positions again organically, not through really concerted sort of token sales efforts, but often in a more gradual manner, you start having liquidity programs. Can you talk about, you know, during that period, how are you starting to think about Melon? How are you starting to think about your community and decentralization of the protocol? You know, what were you grappling with in this transition from a thing that is like emotionally wrapped up that you're building during the hard times to a community rail for asset management? Yeah, I mean, I think as we came out with V2 and subsequently V3 and V4 more recently, just a few weeks ago, I think we've evolved from, you know, the vision of just being an asset management platform to being more of a DeFi operating system and really servicing the needs of any on-chain asset management. And that doesn't necessarily mean just a fund or building your own index and interacting with your investors. But we're seeing other use cases evolve, like, for example, DAO treasuries, you know, who manage their treasury through a contract like Open uh, Zeppelin Governor, the Bravo contract from Compound or Agnosis Safe still have day-to-day -day problems with how can they measure, how can they manage, how can they stick with their philosophy of being decentralized as a DAO? while still managing their treasury efficiently, because the only really way to do it is to give a single person control. You know, good luck trying to manage an active treasury when you need so many signatures from other parties on your team. So what Enzyme enables DAOs, treasuries to do, and companies even, is, is to set up a, an account, set up a vault, and then delegate trading to one or two or more 
managers. They have, through the risk management policies that the owner of the vault can define, they can define what those delegated traders can and can't do. So you could say Lex is allowed to manage a yield strategy on compound, Aave, Curve, Convex, etc., but is not allowed to interact with any other DeFi protocol. And we can also say if Lex incurs a trading slippage of more than 5% on a seven-day rolling period, his trading permissions will be automatically revoked by the DAO. And so these policies enable much more enable a DAO to stay decentralized and stick with all the values of decentralization whilst also being efficient and enabling someone or two or three people to actively manage the portfolio and take advantage of all the opportunities. So this is something that we're trying to raise much more awareness about. We're also trying to contribute much more to DAO tooling by working closely with some partners and something that I never really initially saw Enzyme for, but something that we're realizing has a big value to treasurers. We've also seen protocols like Unslashed. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with the insurance protocol. They um, take in collateral by depositors who contribute to this insurance pool and they sell on the other side insurance on various protocols and various events in DeFi to third parties. And they had this realization a couple of years ago, well, we're taking in all these premium, but it's just sitting in our account and idle. And what if we built a bridge to a protocol like Enzyme, which enabled us to manage this completely transparently, completely openly, but in a very risk managed way to our community, they're now sort of earning high single digit, low double digit yield on their collateral which together with their farming rewards and together with the insurance premiums come in, coming in, you know, add up to quite a substantial yield for people providing collateral to the insurance protocol. So we're seeing all of these use cases evolve and emerge. Maybe one last one to highlight is Celsius recently became a user of Enzyme. They're probably one of our biggest users today, and they are using it to bridge cross-chain liquidity. So who would have ever thought, you know, they... Basically, you know, anyone can now deposit, I'm just giving an example here, but let's say a problem that's emerging in DeFi is because of all the layer ones and layer two liquidity is becoming very fragmented. And so Celsius are trying to solve that problem by providing liquidity cross-chain. And so you can now go into Celsius X website, you can deposit some ETH, you can receive back, you know, Celsius wrapped ETH on Polygon. And then through the ETH you deposit, Celsius deposit that into an enzyme vault so that CX ETH holders on Polygon have full transparency to the one-to-one backing of their wrapped assets. Additionally, Chainlink comes into the equation by providing a proof of reserve to Polygon. So users know with full certainty at all time that their wrapped ETH is backed. And now Celsius, instead of just holding custody of the ETH, can put their ETH to work in yield strategies, which benefits the the C. CX ETH holder and, you know, Celsius, because instead of just having these idle assets, they're also earning yield on the asset whilst being able to prove that it's safe. There's no way to to steal the funds from there. It's kind of almost acting as a smart custodian, you know, with access to DeFi. So there's all these use cases that are emerging in the asset management sphere beyond funds, which is what I had envisaged Enzyme for. So recently we've rebranded away from just, you know, a funds platform and more towards this idea of a DeFi operating system. And think about Enzyme as having all the building blocks for anything you want to do in in asset management in a professional way. 
and other protocols, users, etc., being able to think about how to use that and plug into their plug in their use case for that. So I want to explore two directions. One is the transition from you know a company or a project to a protocol in more detail and what that entails and how you would potentially advise others who are still running bundled centralized projects where you know the blockchain bit and the company bit are intertwined. So that's one dimension. But since you've brought up the yield discussion, I did want to double click on that from an exposure and asset management perspective. You know, and the framing for that would be yield or return generally comes from taking a particular risk. The interest rates in DeFi as an asset class tend to be higher <laughs> than traditional exposure. Then there are sort of vaults that aggregate those interest rates into something that's maybe a little bit more smooth, right? So you have some particular protocol that's doing yield farming at a thousand percent for a month and then zero for the rest. And then you have other things that are moving their rewards around and so on. And then you've got kind of meta, essentially decentralized versions of PIMCO, you know, doing a fixed income fund that turns lots of variable interest rates into something that's a little bit more smooth, but is still quite attractive. For people who sit outside of our space and don't have an intuition for what the interest rate comes from, what is being rewarded by this interest rate, can you talk a little bit about how you would think about this exposure maybe from a more conservative or traditional capital markets point of view? It's a great question. I think you touched on a point that, you know, the yields were maybe attributed to the risk or to the, the higher risk. I assume you meant smart contract risk on the protocols or like the fact that some protocols are less battle tested, less audited than others. But I think that's a very small part of it. I actually think that the premium in DeFi yields on stable coins exists, and not just stable coins actually, exists for a much more structural reason. If you think about the structural build of the crypto market, the sort of typical risk-free rate in traditional finance would be the difference between where futures are trading and cash is trading, which is often referred to as the risk-free rate or the basis rate, which is you know the common arbitrage a lot of people put when they can sell futures at a premium and buy the cash asset upfront and then lock in this arbitrage. And this is typically in TradFi a capital intensive trade, but it's a much, much more capital intensive trade in DeFi or in crypto because of the fragmentation that exists between exchanges and DeFi. In order to get the liquidity you need, you need to be using several exchanges, but every single exchange has a different withdrawal rules, has different withdrawal limits and different margin requirements. And there's no way to aggregate all of that in one place where you can just have a margin requirement which looks through all your positions and nets them off one another at the end of the day, like you have a clearinghouse in TradFi, but you don't have that equivalent in, in DeFi and crypto. So as a result, these trades are much more capital inefficient. You have to maintain margin requirements on every individual exchange and in DeFi for every single lending and borrowing protocol. And this just means you need a lot more digital dollars in order to put these trades on. And therefore, the demand for borrowing digital dollars is higher. And so the premium in yields is justified. Um, there are a few other reasons structural as well, but I think this is the biggest structural reason. I don't see this problem being solved anytime soon. 
And then this premium is also complemented by the fact that DeFi protocols are also being very generous in the early days with growing their TVL through offering farming rewards. And I think this is a bit less sustainable, but this is also a very interesting aspect that we can't ignore. If you were to look at it from a risk perspective, I would actually say that in order to get a 4 to 5% yield in TradFi, you have to be looking at really risky assets like junk bonds, which actually are a lot riskier than holding stable coins and lending them on compounds, convex, curve, etc. And so you can actually reduce your risk in many ways. You could even buy a layer of insurance on your kind of DeFi experience to protect you against the smart contract risk and go for a 10% maybe gross yield with battle-tested protocols, maybe spend 2-3% on insurance and actually get the same yield that you'd be getting on a really, a really, really risky asset in TradFi with high default potential, but actually for a lot less risk in DeFi and for the same, getting the same premium. So I actually think that these yields are here to stay. I think DeFi is a really, really exciting place to be. And I think there's just a lot of education required for kind of TradFi people getting into DeFi. And also the tools are not really existing to manage DeFi on behalf of other people in a risk-managed way. And that's, I think, where the Enzyme operating system, the DeFi operating system or Enzyme come into play by really trying to offer these professional tools for people to manage their DeFi in an efficient, but you know, much less risky way. I think it's going to take a while for the industries to understand the fundamentals. And there's always going to be skepticism out of ignorance, but it is becoming less and less possible to ignore an asset class that is performing well, especially as you know, traditional 60-40 portfolios aren't getting anybody excited these days. The last question I wanted to really open up for us is this question about protocol versus company versus community versus project, foundation, you know, decentralized governance and so on. Can you map a little bit what is the difference between the Enzyme protocol versus avant-garde finance? And then how did governance evolve over time with what you're doing? And then both in terms of how you see that for the things that you've built, as well as how you see that across Web3 as a destination. Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I can say pretty proudly that I think we were the first DeFi protocol in history to decentralize our governance. That was in February 2019. And the way that we did it is we had this initial company, and it was not a foundation, it was a company in Switzerland that had a mandate to build this product, you know, V1 of Melon slash now Enzyme which was going to be delivered as a public good to the community. And then the plan was always, what we communicated was that we would always wind Melonport down after that two-year period. And that's exactly what we did. I think to this day, we might still be the only DeFi protocol in history that wound down the original company behind it and completely dissolved it. And we handed control over to a DAO, which is made up of technically skilled and user people and user representatives. So auditors or people that had contributed code base to Enzyme over that two-year period. And from that point on, it's their decision how they add people, where they add people, etc. We designed the DAO, you know, kind of almost like statutes to the DAO, where people had to agree to reveal their identity because we believe, you know, there's a reputational aspect required here to disclose any conflict up front. 
and to really like, you know, agree to these kind of statutes, which we wrote. And it worked pretty well. I'd say like the main challenge had been just this idea of efficiency when you go from being a single entity which can move very nimbly and make decisions very quickly and act to much slower in the sense that, you know, you you don't just want people to blind vote. You want people to review and think about decisions, but also that takes time. And if you have to reach a quorum of, say, 50 percent or 70 percent in order to pass a vote or pass a decision, that can become a competitive disadvantage, right? We've been working over the last few years on a few different ideas to improve DAO participation. One of those ideas was monitoring participation. So we have, you know, we do monitor participation metrics for each DAO member. We count how many meetings, in-person meetings they attend. We account how many votes they have participated in that were relevant to them and other soft factors. And we have minimum thresholds. So if they don't abide, you know, if they don't participate, I forget what they are off the top of my head, but if they don't participate in the minimum threshold of votes over a certain period, they get automatically kicked out of the council. So that's how we've done things. Much more recently, we've also realized that I think also because we've grown as a protocol and the scope has grown as we deploy to, you know, we've just deployed to Polygon. So the maintenance and the work of the council, the workload has increased a lot. And so what we've also decided is that we want to create almost like working groups within the council or squads, I think we call them, which enable the council members to focus on what they're good at and to specialize. And so it reduces the workload. The idea is that it motivates them more. So a, te- a technical DAO member, for example, somebody who's like an auditor and that's what they're good at doesn't have to be involved in reconciliating accounts or making a decision about whether to give a grant out or not, but can just focus on the technical aspect. And then we have other squads that focus on the grants and ecosystem growth, and then another squad which focuses on the tokenomics and so on and so forth. And I think we're just in the process of implementing this now. I would hope that this also helps us grow and scale and become a lot more efficient as well. You asked about avant-garde finance and the relationship there too. So avant-garde finance, when we met, when we liquidated, when we sort of wound down Mellonport and created the the DAO, avant-garde finance had a seat on the DAO. So it was a company that I created just before Mellonport liquidated. And the idea was that we were actually, we're just going to participate in the DAO activities. But what happened after a few months is that we saw that developers would apply for small grants here and there. I want to build a June dashboard or I want to do this. But nobody was really thinking about the future, planning a roadmap and driving the protocol forward. And so after about six months of watching, and this was kind of in the middle of the bear market as well, we were contributing resources for free. You know, we're just kind of maintenance, support, etc. We decided that we would make a proposal to the, the DAO to become the lead developer, core developer for three years. They can take that mandate away from us at any time, but we're providing software development services to the DAO and sort of trying to set the priorities, the roadmap, contribute development work, find other developers, open source developers who can contribute, organize hackathons, content, etc. And that's up for renewal this October. That's the context. We are not limited to just doing work for Enzyme. We've also been engaging with other protocols, but we value ourselves as the experts on the Enzyme protocol now. And we are happy to provide services to other companies who want to build on top of Enzyme. We partnered with Exponent, we partnered with Unslashed and can help them move a lot faster being being kind of having written the code ourselves. We can help them build the bridges or the products they want to build on top of Enzyme by helping them. They can move a lot faster. 
Awesome. That's such an exciting transition. And I think a blueprint for many others to follow. It's incredible the perseverance that you've shown and continue to be comfortable being ahead of the pack. If our listeners want to learn more about you, to learn more about the protocol and find ways to contribute, what should they do? So the best way to keep on top of the protocol is follow Enzyme Finance on Twitter. We're also very active on Telegram. And then if you want to become active, yeah, just get in touch with one of the admins, get write us a message on Twitter. We're always looking to support interesting grants. We're always looking to support users who are maybe have a crazy idea. Like, you know, the idea of Celsius to build cross-chain liquidity using an enzyme vault was completely wacky, but so exciting. We're always open to non-traditional out-of-the-box thinking and how enzyme can be useful. So yeah, just get in touch with us. We'll connect you to the right person. And we're, yeah, we're always excited to hear more. Fantastic. Mona, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the FinTech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time.